Six months into the COVID pandemic, we are all facing a constant stream of difficult decisions. Should we send our kids back to school? Should we accept that birthday party invitation? When should we wear a mask? As you navigate these choices, tapping into the latest science on COVID can be incredibly empowering. My guest today, epidemiologist Dr. Caroline Bucky, can help you do just that. In our chat, we explore many of the critical questions that we need to understand in order to make well-informed choices. How does COVID spread? Can kids spread COVID? Which prevention strategies are the most effective? Can people get reinfected? We close by looking forward at the next six months and the key factors that will shape our collective fates, including vaccines, herd immunity, and politics. Dr. Bucky is an Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Associate Director of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at Harvard School of Public Health. She and her colleagues have played and continue to play invaluable roles in understanding this pandemic and informing public health policies. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Dr. Caroline Bucky, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I can't believe I get to have a real live epidemiologist in front of me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I gave you uh, a little snippet of my long list of questions here. So I promise you, I'm not going to hold you to this whole list, but I just want to cover as much ground as we can, because there's just, there's just so much that we don't understand, and so much uncertainty and so much confusion that you just, anything you can do to help clarify will be immensely helpful. I'll do my best. Okay. So um, the, I guess the central frame that I want to build all of these questions around is balancing, you know, the need to be health conscious and cautious and avoiding COVID with the need to, you know, move on with our lives as much as we can and not paying too much of a cost for moving on. So um, I really want to help people, including myself, really make choices that are sort of as rational as possible. And and to me, you need to understand what the real risk actually is as much as you can in order to be as rational as possible. So that's kind of where how I'm trying to build this around. Um, Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this whole pandemic has been about trying to balance individual responsibility versus public health response. So Mm -hmm. that definitely makes sense. Yes. And uh, we're at an interesting point um, in this pandemic where people are experiencing a sort of lockdown fatigue. And um, as we and, and and we're seeing second waves, and yet we are seeing public health officials hesitant to be as strict as they were initially um, because of a fear of pushback. Is that, is, do you think that's a real, is that, is that real? Do you think this sort of perception? Yeah, I, I think uh, that what we've seen um, following the initial stage of lockdown and the subsequent reopening is that um, there, this, the whole response to this pandemic has become so politicized mm-hmm. and policymakers are trying to balance uh, you know, the economic and political climate that they're dealing with, the fallout from the lockdowns from before, mm-hmm. and, and trying to balance um, their ability to manage compliance as well. Yes. You know, 
the the whole thing about public health is that it relies on trust and it relies yeah. on individual behaviors. And so um, understandably, policymakers are very hesitant to send us back into those early, really locked down phases. And I think with good reason. Um, in fact, I think that, you know, we know now a lot more than we did. And there is no reason that we can't continue to have some functioning of society that allows people to go back to work and get on with their lives while really making sure that people are compliant with the public health strategies that we know work to reduce transmission. Right. So I, I think that that's, a, that's an accurate representation of what policymakers are facing. Right. So, so that's good news. So we're in a much better position to actually be strategic about what behaviors and aspects of society we allow to open and which ones we don't. And whereas initially we were just, you're flying blind, so. got to close everything. I mean, I think we, we have learned a lot. I think what we've also seen is that in, in some populations, um, for political reasons, for reasons of misinformation um, and uh, online communities and so on, uh, we've actually seen that people are very hesitant to take even very reasonable steps mm -hmm. to prevent transmission. And so um, in some ways, it's easier because we know what interventions are going to work well. Uh, but in other ways, it's harder because we're seeing active pushback against even simple interventions like wearing mm -hmm. masks. And so this is a big challenge um, mm -hmm. for, for public health practitioners. Yes. One of the things I'm hoping we can maybe touch on is helping people to, again, so sort of I know, I know nobody can pin a number on absolute risk, but, you know, we, I think people have a better sense of sort of the risk continuum. Like, I understand that outdoors with no one around me is less risky than indoors in an elevator with 20 people. But can you put some numbers on either of those? I mean, I know you can't make perfect numbers, but I think people really struggle and, and can be paralyzed by not having any sense of what the risk really is. And, and can we use public health data? Can the average person start to use public health data? Um, to wrap their heads around ballpark even? Or is that just too scary to, for you to contemplate people really, you know, yeah. taking action on this, this highly available public health data? Well, it's interesting because some aspects of the data are available and other aspects are not. So for example, mm. um, we don't have widely available sex and age disaggregated data uh, for, the, for North America, for the US, mm. for example. Um, and that does make it hard for people to really uh, come to terms with what the risks are. Um, and we know that things like age um, and other comorbidities are very important in determining risk. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think it's, it's not an illusion that it's hard for people to, to try to put numbers on these things. Mm -hmm. Apart from anything else, I think there are still many unknowns about the spectrum of severity mm -hmm. and especially some of the longer term sequelae. So, you know, some of the longer term yes. health impacts we, we won't become apparent for some time. Um, and so caution is warranted. Um, what I think has become more clear, um, are things like which routes of transmission are more risky than others. And that can help people to, to get a sense for in their own lives what they may be willing to tolerate or not. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were quite concerned about fomite transmission. That's, you know, transmission on surfaces and so on. Um, and it seems that that isn't one of the major routes of transmission um, but rather now, um, airborne and, and droplet transmission seems to be more important. And so that's really changed our thinking in terms of the, the really key things that we have to take into account in our personal behavior. So that's mm -hmm. indoor crowding, um, duration of time that you're in an enclosed space, uh, those kinds of things. 
Uh, and so wearing masks is obviously uh, key for people. And, and that's become very clear during the course of the pandemic. And then apart from that, I think we have to make judgments based on um, the, the contacts that we have and who is high risk within those contacts. So which of our family members are over 65 or have other underlying conditions that make them particularly at risk and mm -hmm. tailor our behaviors accordingly with you know, keeping in mind that we need to respect our communities and protect the most vulnerable people. So, you know, wearing a mask when you go into a store is is not unreasonable, I don't think. Um, and similarly, I think as a as a community, as a population, we have to make some trade offs. And if that means not going to bars and restaurants in order for our children to be able to return to school, then I think collectively we need to come to some understanding that that's going to be necessary um, to survive through the winter without catastrophic mortality, mm -hmm. uh, especially in communities that haven't really seen much of the virus so far. So they're, they're not really, uh, you know, they're nowhere close to herd immunity. Mm -hmm. uh, man, you, you've got me percolating a bunch of questions as you were, as you were speaking there. One that actually on the, so on, on the personal risk aspect of it, so how bad is it if, if I get it? Um, how much is, do we have data on sort of age independent from comorbidities? Because of course you see all these comorbidities in older people. And so do we have data on just healthy older people and, and are, and how susceptible are, are they and how serious are the consequences? I think, um, again, uh, how people understand risk is really different person to person. So for a healthy individual, uh, more likely than not, you will be okay if you get COVID-19 and you may well be asymptomatic, that is have no symptoms at all or very mild mm -hmm. symptoms. But, but that's not to say that we haven't seen cases where people are very severely ill, even people that haven't had mm -hmm. uh, you know, underlying conditions. So mm -hmm. uh, it's still quite early to, to say anything definitive about individual level mm -hmm. risk, um, mm -hmm. except that we know that you know, there are some kind of classic ones like age and um, uh, you know, some, some other morbidities that, but, that we need to worry about. So mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, the, the, the key as well to keep in mind is that there's so many unknowns with this virus. Uh, and we've seen so much devastation in our communities, especially in our older communities so far. And the question is, what are we willing to tolerate as a society? Um, and, and what does that mean for our own individual behaviors? So, you know, all of these things are weighing up your own personal tolerance for risk and what that looks mm -hmm. like. And it's going to vary person to person. Mm -hmm. But again, I think the public health response has to weigh up the broader risks to our society as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's challenging uh, mm -hmm. for sure. What advice would you give to, you know, parents that are, you know, trying to just weigh the pros and cons of sending their child back to school and, and recognizing it's going to be a personal choice? But how, how do you approach that? Um, I think uh, what we've seen around the U.S., for example, in places that have started to open uh, is that probably the, the biggest factor in determining whether it's safe to open schools is community level transmission. Mm -hmm. So how much transmission is there around in your neighborhood in the, in the people that live um, and work in the school, um, uh, you know, near the school. And, and that's for me, one of the most important factors in deciding mm -hmm. whether it's safe to send kids back or not. Mm -hmm. And again, that speaks to these societal level trade-offs that we need to make about 
um, you know, what we're willing to sacrifice for the sake of getting kids back to school. And, you know, in a lot of cases that um, feeds kids from lower socioeconomic status areas and it allows parents to go back to work. And, you know, I think often the, the people that are being disproportionately impacted by kids not being at school, at school are mothers, working moms. Mm-hmm. And so there's many layers to this to this pandemic. Um, and and I think community level transmission, making sure that that's as low as possible before mm-hmm. schools start to open is, is the key. Like the schools themselves have to take steps. Ventilation mm-hmm. is a huge one, having people wearing masks uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. It would probably make you cringe, but I wrote an article back in, in June when my son was going back to school about sort of the logic that I tried to walk myself through in making a decision about sending him back for that that precautionary period. And I basically said, okay, what's what's as, as local as I can get for a view of what is the what is the local rate? And at that point, in Greater Vancouver region, we had about one new case a day in a region of 1.5 million people. Um, we were seeing like single digit cases per day, um, and they had been pretty low for a while. And so I tried to say, okay, let's just take um, the absolute worst case scenario assumption that you know. Again, that these numbers are their actual numbers are tenfold higher because testing isn't perfect. And let's assume that the, it's actually been growing stealthily at some rate that is not represented in the recent data because of the lag, and it's actually been doubling every three days, something really preposterous. Um, then I take that number, say, okay, well, the real number is not one zero one. The real number is whatever a hundred cases out of one point five million people. My let's say my son is exposed to all five hundred people in his school somehow, and then what's the percent chance that he's actually going to be exposed. And I came up with a very small number doing that kind of worst case estimation. So anyways, as an epidemiologist, how, like what steps would you take and maybe where did I go wrong in that logic and what are all the, all the unknowns that play into it? Yeah, I, I think your logic is correct. Uh, I think the tricky part is understanding um, the reality behind the numbers that are available to us in different mm-hmm. parts of the world and in, in different parts of the country. So confirmed cases is going to be a small fraction, but it's kind of hard to know what fraction yeah. of the true cases it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of these different metrics around and it's hard for people, I think, to know what the testing criterion is in their area, how mm-hmm. that's been changing. Uh, the extent to which testing capacity is keeping ahead of um, of, of the epidemic. Uh, and, you know, again, these are lagged indicators with mm-hmm. respect to transmission, right? Mm-hmm. So the what we know is that, you know, you get ex- infected, you won't get symptoms for about five days or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you get tested, depending on the testing delays in your area, the test won't come back for a couple of days, um, and, you know, by that point, you've been infectious for several days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, if you show up in the data, you'll show up, you know, at that later date compared to when you got infected. You know, God forbid you have to be hospitalized or you die. Again, that will take three, four weeks. So mm-hmm. these lagged indicators are problematic. I think if it were me, I would definitely be looking at, at trying to understand what the local prevalence, local incidence was in in my area. I would look at the trends, I think looking Mm -hmm. to see, you know, are things going up? Have they been coming down? Are they staying level over the last month? Test positivity rates that, you know, people look at a lot, 
that is uh, quite difficult to interpret, actually. Uh, if it's very, very high, it means that your testing capacity is not working well. You're simply mm -hmm. not testing enough people. Mm -hmm. um, but below that, it's, it's sometimes difficult to interpret because you don't know who's getting tested mm -hmm. uh, and you don't know exactly what's going on with those numbers. So that's sometimes a little bit difficult to interpret mm -hmm. unless it's very high and then you kind of know that mm -hmm. there's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of obviously deaths and uh, things like that, the important thing to remember there is simply that it's it's lagged by quite some time. And so mm -hmm. um, even if the death rate is very low, um, that doesn't necessarily indicate anything about your safety right now. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right in in kind of your thinking and how you would how you would try to account for testing capacity and you know the fraction that are asymptomatic and so they don't get tested for that reason. Mm -hmm. um, but but you know all of these indicators are somewhat problematic and and uh, not the to not the whole picture. And then yes. I think the other thing is that parents really do have to look at their school's plan. Mm -hmm. and see if it makes sense to them uh, mm -hmm. and see if it addresses some of these critical issues about transmission, which is, you know, keeping um, keeping kids apart from each other, you know, what's their mask-wearing um, protocol, mm -hmm. uh, to what extent have they addressed the ventilation situation, so mm -hmm. is there good ventilation in the classroom, how are they going to protect their teaching staff, um, all of those kinds of questions are also important. Yeah. I know schools are also approaching this sort of pod size, um, pod consideration differently as well. And I mean, can I saw a New York Times article that did something similar. They said, you know, let's say, what's the local uh, infection rate? Let's add a 5x multiplier. Let's factor in the current growth rate and then try and arrive a number of what's the chances that someone in your school is infected. And then they would basically divide it by the pod size as... You know, yeah, the problem the problem with that, um, and and to be clear, this is kind of what they're, they're kind of doing an epidemiological model in their head, right? That's mm -hmm. what that's what that those that logic is. Um, I think the problem with that is that uh, epidemics spread through social networks, and they're very they're very local. So in our models, what we do is we tend to, depending on the formulation of the model, is we tend to assume one well-mixed population, right? So mm -hmm. those exponential growth models that you will have seen, they tend to assume that we've got kind of right. random mixing within a group of people, right. but we don't. Um, right. And so uh, the, the, the logic behind the calculation is not wrong, but you could get it wrong in terms of the risk because um, the structure of the social networks that mm -hmm. underpin viral transmission right. are highly heterogeneous. And so, right. You know, for example, we have college kids coming back um, to the Boston, Cambridge area uh, mm -hmm. from all over the, the US and they may well be bringing cases with them. And the question for parents is, to what extent do we think the social networks of college kids and the social networks of the school kids overlap? Hmm. For sure, once the, the epidemic gets out into the community, then and it starts spreading kind of freely in the community, then then we have problems. Um, but but localized outbreaks um, are a slightly different thing. And so right. some of right. these aggregated metrics that you will see on public dashboards and public websites, right. they're aggregated to a level where it's kind of hard to make sense of your local yeah. risk. That's a sort of 
general problem for mm -hmm. epidemiologists, right? Which is yeah. what is the denominator? What is the group of, what is the population at risk? Yes, yes. I remember thinking along those lines early on when there were so many nursing outbreaks, it didn't seem to make sense to think of my local rate as containing that nursing home outbreak when it was really its own entity. Right, exactly. So you have this, this tight knit local community and all of the social contacts um, mm. and all of the locations where spreading is occurring are sort of contained. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course it spreads the community through the workers that work in those nursing homes mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. What is the latest data uh, that you're aware of on the extent to which children transmit, you know, are li as likely or less likely to transmit as adults? So it seems as if children become infected at um, not that much less often than adults. So basically mm -hmm. children are not immune to this. They, they do indeed become infected. Of course, they don't tend to have severe disease and they are more often asymptomatic and have no mm -hmm. symptoms. Um, and there's a, there's some, uh, some evidence that they're slightly less infectious. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's been some other recent data that shows that their viral load, so how much virus that they are shedding, may be as high mm -hmm. as adults. So I think it's still an open question, um, whether they are significantly less likely to be to be contributing to transmission, but mm -hmm. they certainly can contribute to transmission, mm -hmm. thankfully, less likely to get disease. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Um, we haven't just changing gears, we haven't talked much about immunity. And I know that's on a lot, on a lot mm. of people's minds. Um, in fact, I, just yesterday, there was a story of supposedly the first reinfection, you know, of someone in Hong Kong four months right. later. So wondering that, that the big question is, can people become reinfected? You know, how long are if you how long yeah. does immunity last? And, and, and how effective are the immunity are the antibody tests in capturing that? Yeah. So, um, the, the reinfection of this man in Hong Kong, um, I think is not necessarily surprising. Um, there have been, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that have had this virus and we haven't seen an overwhelming number of reinfections, which we would have seen if there was no immunity. Mm -hmm. So, um, th this reinfection is, is not particularly surprising and, uh, the person didn't have symptoms in this secondary infection mm -hmm. consistent with some immunity that's protecting against you know very high viral load or, or pathogenesis mm -hmm. i think there is um likely some level of functional immunity we don't know yet how long it's going to last that's a big open question um, but i think there's a growing consensus that there is some functional immunity whether or not it will protect against reinfection or uh, just against symptomatic disease. Mm -hmm. The balance of that is still an open question as well, and likely we'll see a spectrum in, in different people. Um, but it does provide hope that, you know, we will be able to make a vaccine and uh, uh, there will be some amount of immunity that will protect people from the worst of this, of this disease. Mm. Um, interestingly, you know, uh, what we're finding is not inconsistent with the kinds of immunity we've seen in other seasonal coronaviruses. Okay. So, um, so the so what the pattern of immunity so far is kind of I think um, hopeful, um, but it remains to be seen how efficacious the immune response is and how long it lasts. With respect to your question about measuring antibodies, mm -hmm. um, it's important to remember that uh, this virus. You can imagine a virus as you know um, having many different components. And your immune response similarly creates antibodies to different parts of the virus. 
And so when we go looking for an antibody response, we're looking for a specific type of response to a specific part of the virus. And because we don't know yet which part is going to be protective, Mm -hmm. we're not necessarily measuring the right bit. Um, And so, uh, you know, just because you don't have antibodies doesn't necessarily mean you won't have some level of immunity. Um, And again, we don't really understand the dynamics of immunity and whether it's waning and things like that. Um, But there's measurement error as well um, in just trying to figure out which bit of the immune response is going to be a good predictive biomarker of protection. And uh, we, we don't know that yet. So, right, is a generic antibody test just total antibody titer? Like, again, without any specificity to what that antibody might be targeting within the virus or... Or, or is it more so? No, it lo- it's looking for a specific kind of antibody. Okay. Um, okay. And yes, it's tight. So you know, your the uh, the amount of antibody you have mm. will determine. You know, that's part of the test sensitivity, right? Mm. Which is, um, you know, it will have a limit of detection. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean like total antibodies to anything. But is it? it are are they pan COVID or are they specific to any part of um, the SARS the SARS virus? So they will be specific to this coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, there's there are, as you say, there's other layers of specificity within that. But we don't have the we don't have the knowledge enough to to know which ones that that might be. Right, and there's yeah, different antibody tests rituals. that measure different bits of the corona of, mm-hmm. of this coronavirus as well. That measure antibodies to different bits of it. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and 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 we didn't really talk about the, sort of the whole T cell aspect that. The other layer, if you right? Want to add anything so, just just to say that again, um, we still we still don't have a really clear picture about the the dynamics of the immune response, and you know the different you know B cell versus T cell aspects and so mm-hmm. on. But it seems likely that we'll have some functional protection against, if not infection, then maybe then then disease. Um, mm-hmm. for some amount of time, mm-hmm. uh, and it remains to be seen how long. And and again. The other thing to note is that the immunity that a vaccine elicits is not necessarily the same as immunity that you mm-hmm. acquire following infection, and and that will take some time to figure out as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, 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 and I hadn't thought about this glass half full idea that if someone becomes reinfected but not sick, it's sort of that's similar to what you might hope from a vaccine, I guess. Well, right. I mean, ideally, from a vaccine, you want to stop transmission, so really, you want to stop infection. Mm. Um, mm. rather than than right. simply ameliorate the the symptoms, but right. at least if you if we cut the right. morbidity and mortality rate, that will be something. But I guess the fact that children have a high viral load but without disease seems like they're not really intimately linked. Um, that so probably, I mean, in other in other pathogens, viral load does correlate with disease severity. Mm. But it's not a simple relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, probably more virus means more infectiousness and more severity, but it's not necessarily a very clear cut relationship. Yeah. And we, we don't know that um, yeah. just yet. Yeah. It probably also depends a lot on which side of the body you're sampling, right? Because you're, you're not sampling the whole body's viral load. Right. One site. Right. And, and the sampling can be heterogeneous. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a sampling error and sampling bias and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, so many layers of complexity. So um, being, being cognizant of time, I wanted to kind of move forward into uh, a little bit about 
um, just modeling outbreaks in general and sort of what we've learned. So how did this, because um, there's been, you know, there were these stories about modeling is useless. The models didn't predict perfectly what happened. So your response, your response to that and, and really what we've learned. Yeah, I think so. Um, the point of a, a model, and I'm going to limit this to uh, forecasting models. So these are models that are designed to say what might happen in the future, mm. in the immediate future, not necessarily mechanistic models that try and understand biological mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the beginning of the outbreak, um, there was so little information available to policymakers to try to make decisions about course of action and interventions. Mm-hmm. And we knew a few things about the virus, but not a lot. And so the first, the early models were really trying to um, formalize the thinking around what the observations that we had so far could mean for the spread of this disease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, there was a lot of criticism, partly because there were many very, there were many weak models that were being used um, inappropriately. Uh, and that received a lot of criticism. Um, and partly because the models were highly uncertain, um, mm-hmm. just because the biology was so uncertain and, mm-hmm. and testing was such a disaster that we didn't know how many mm-hmm. cases there were. And, you know, you mm-hmm. can't make a good prediction about the future when you don't even know what's happening right now. So huge amount of uncertainty, both in the, the, the biology of the disease itself, as well as, um, in, in kind of the, where we were. Mm-hmm. And so the models were really what we had in the absence of any other information. Mm-hmm. So yes, there were there were issues, especially with some of the model frameworks that were being used. Um, but on the other hand, um, some of these models were the only things that policymakers had to go on to try and understand what might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so in those early days, there was just a huge amount of uncertainty all around and the models were a framework to try and understand what could happen. And I think mm-hmm. in that context, um, you know, in that context, they were useful. Um, again, not helped by the proliferation of different models and, and confusion about what the goal of the modeling exercise was or what type of approach should be used and in what situation. Um, you know, since then, there have been a number of other modeling approaches that have been very helpful, and those have been mechanistic. So, uh, you know, those have been asking questions about, okay, if we assume X about immunity, or we assume why about the structure of social networks. What do we think will happen? And how can we use that information um, to make sensible policy decisions? Mm-hmm. And how can we use it to design better interventions? Mm-hmm. And I think those continue to be very helpful um, in, in thinking through the implications of some of our um, control strategies um, and in thinking about what the future scenarios might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that uh, these models are... Um, should ever be seen as a definitive answer mm-hmm. to be used in the isolate in isolation from all the other um, political, economic, and and um, epidemiological evidence available, but mm-hmm. rather a tool to kind of examine the implications of your assumptions in a formal mm-hmm. way and mm-hmm. in a transparent way. Yeah, and that to me is is why models are useful. It's because it, they lay out very clearly what you believe to be true. Yes. And then they ask, what are the implications of those assumptions? Yeah. Are there any specific assumptions that you think were common, you know, downfalls to why some of the early models didn't play out? Like, where did we guess 
guess wrong as a base case? Uh, well, I think there was some modeling approaches that didn't do well. So mm -hmm. there was, uh, there were, um, the underlying assumption behind those model approaches that didn't work well was that an epidemic in one place is going to be recapitulated in another place. Mm. And, and, you know, and so we could just statistically copy the outbreak in Wuhan and overlay it onto populations in North America. And clearly that's not an appropriate set mm -hmm. of assumptions. Um, I think we have uh, seen consistently super spreading events mm -hmm. be a very critical part of this, of this outbreak. And in the modeling sense, what that means is that your reproduction number, which is the number of cases that each case leads to, each case generates, is highly dispersed. So you have a lot of people that only spread the disease to one person, and then you have some people um, that spread the disease to many people, mm -hmm. to many others. And so these super spreading events um, are important in determining the, the dynamics of, of the outbreaks. And I think we've come to appreciate how important those super spreading yeah. events are. So that's one thing. Um, so I think one thing that really um, is very hard to capture in mathematical models, and that we have seen come to the fore as probably one of the most important aspects of this pandemic is the importance of trying to incorporate human behavior more realistically into our models. So, you know, uh, it, it's very hard to predict human behavior during a crisis. Um, and what we've seen is that some of the ways in which models have gone wrong is because we have not been able to anticipate some of the politicization, some of the behavioral responses among populations mm -hmm. um, to the interventions, um, you know, the spread of misinformation and what that mm -hmm. has meant for trying to put in place common sense right. restrictions. Right. Right. Um, that, you know, that's something that was not easy to foresee, mm -hmm. very difficult to put into the models in a reasonable way and, and, a large part of the uncertainty overall. Yeah. So models would typically assume perfect compliance? Well, or... they would assume something like, you know, some fraction of contacts are, you know, reduced by mm -hmm. some intervention. Right. So, right. right. you know, you can, you can change what you assume about compliance, mm -hmm. um, but in the absence of, of really being able to predict that, it's hard mm. to estimate what what might happen as a result of a particular mm. policy. Yeah. So let's let's um, start wrapping up with just looking forward. And so, what do you think will be? Um, what do you see in your crystal ball? And what are the big factors that will determine the fate of the next, you know, six six months of this pandemic? So I think um, I think the next six months is going to be defined by some of these social, behavioral, and political issues. Mm -hmm. I think um, from an epidemiological standpoint, uh, we, we have a, a good idea of the basic parameters of this disease. We know some of the basic interventions that we need to focus on. The extent to which policymakers and the public will accept that and um, feel that they um, want to put those into place mm -hmm. is very hard to predict. You know, in the US, we have the election coming up in November. And uh, there are all sorts of uncertainties associated with how politics and public health will interact leading up to that 
um, event mm -hmm. um, and subsequently into the winter. So honestly, I think that the biggest source of uncertainty is political at this point mm -hmm. rather than biological. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that um, we have some promise that there's functional immunity. So I'm hopeful that there will be a vaccine of some kind. The scale up of that vaccine is going to be also very political and, and mm -hmm. probably characterized by inequitable distribution. And that's something I worry about mm -hmm. for next year. Uh, but, but overall, what that means is that we likely will have a vaccine and um, there will come a time when we've brought this much more under control. So um, I don't have a crystal ball, but <laughs> I think the winter is, is problematic. Um, but I'm more hopeful for, you know, this time next year. So one last question on vaccines. How optimistic are you that we'll have enough uptake to reach herd immunity? Or, or I mean, do you see do you see us reaching herd immunity through infection or, or through vaccine? Or like, how do you see those two playing the role in, in getting us there? Um, again, I, I uh, again, this is because vaccine uptake depends on some of these social, mm. um, political, behavioral yeah. things. It's hard to predict how how that will go um, yeah. and how misinformation about it will spread, how it will be right. politicized. So that's tricky. Um, I do think that uh, in places where we have reasonable uptake, uh, we should be able to complement other non-pharmaceutical interventions with the vaccine and bring transmission down to a reasonable mm -hmm. level. Um, as far as whether herd immunity has been reached in some populations, I think it's possible um, in places, especially in low-income settings um, and in very poor communities, we've seen a very high uh, number of cases, a very high burden of disease. And so then it comes down to um, the duration and efficacy of immunity and, right. and whether that's going to be enough. So right. um, probably there are pockets that, that have got there already, um, but we, we certainly need a vaccine to, to really bring this thing under control. Mm -hmm. Um, is there any um, piece of misinformation as we wrap up that you would like to sort of address head on here that you see as particularly harmful or, or again, or any last messages that you feel like need need to be heard more? Um, I mean, I think um, many of us have been quite disturbed at some of the um, misinformation about science and scientists and epidemiologists mm -hmm. trying to push political agendas and um, you know, a lot of us have been working really hard all year to try to provide good information um, and to try to support policymakers. And so that's been disturbing. Um, I think, you know, I would emphasize that randomized control trials are really important for us to be able to understand how well new, new treatments and um, the vaccine will work. Mm -hmm. So we can't mm -hmm. rush some of these things. Right. Um, you know, th this has been the most rapid proliferation of new vaccines and treatments and trials, you know, probably in the history of the world. Um, so, the, so the pace is very fast, but there are some things you can't rush and we mm -hmm. cannot tolerate um, risk in terms of safety and efficacy of these interventions mm -hmm. um, for the sake of, of political will and, and rushing. And so I think, mm -hmm. I really hope that people understand that randomized control trials are not an attempt to slow down people's access to treatments. Mm -hmm. They are really designed to make sure that we don't endanger people and that we, we get the best treatments to, to people who need it. 
Yeah. No. I'll, thank you, um, Caroline, for all your hard work. I know you and, and all of your peers are just giving 110% all the time. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's tiring. <laughs> well, thank you for your time for fitting in one more thing uh, on top of all the other demands you have. So I really appreciate thank it. You it's for been really me. educational. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>